Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a podcast from WOR. Attention all authors. Page Publishing is looking for authors. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, Apple iTunes, and other outlets. They handle all aspects of the publishing process for you. Printing, cover art, publicity, copyright, and editing. Call 800-204-6099 now for your free author submission kit. That's 800-204-6099 for your free author submission kit. This is the Page Publishing Book Club. How you doing? I'm your host, Alice Stockton-Rossini. What does a teacher do during a mass high school shooting? Ever thought of that? Irene Barry lived it. She's an AP English teacher in New Mexico, and the title of her book says it all, Surviving a Rural High School Shooting. At 8 o'clock in the morning, we had a student come on campus, and he went into a restroom, loaded up clips in a Glock 9mm, and uh, we had two students that were in the hallway. One went in to use the restroom, and he got shot. And he came out of the restroom, and another senior was um, in the hallway, and she got shot. Then he proceeded to go to a classroom and open fire. And luckily, only those two students had been killed because he was surprised that the kid had walked into the uh, restroom. So he killed the first two students, and then when he went down to the classroom, what happened? Everybody was alerted, and so we went into lockdown, and all the students were basically on the floor, low enough where they didn't get hurt by any gunshot. And then he exited that room and uh, killed himself. Was this a kid with mental health issues? Well, apparently he did not graduate from school, and uh, about four years prior to that had been uh, looked at by the FBI as a possible suspect for a mass shooting. He was cleared at that time. Two months before the shooting occurred, he was able to purchase a firearm which is, you know, that blew me away. And I mentioned that in the book, that I'm a gun advocate, but we have to have something in place to make sure that when someone has been suspected earlier of a possibility of a mass shooting, that they're earmarked and not able to purchase a, a firearm. Gun advocates would say, well, that's not fair. He, he was cleared. Right. That's where I have to struggle with it because um, I actually saw the result of it. The point of the book is to let teachers know that they need to be prepared for their students. I went through an active shooter training two years prior to this happening, and that active shooter training prepared me for exactly what happened. I knew there were resources out in the community that were moving as quickly as they can to clear everybody out. Eight hours before the process was completely done, but I felt safe, and I told my students, everything's going to be fine. This is what's going to happen. I knew Sheriff protocol. I knew where to keep them in the classroom, how to keep them safe, how to defend my students if I had to. 
And so this is very important for teachers to know and to understand what that process looks like and to be prepared. That's mostly my message is teachers be prepared because it could happen to you. We never thought it would ever happen to us in Aztec, New Mexico. This is a sad reality. It's very truly a sad reality, but it is reality. And unless teachers wake up and listen to what I'm saying in that book, they ignore the problem. No one wants to realize that this could possibly happen somewhere else, but it's happening all over the place. I'm trying to get higher education to uh, actually make it mandatory, not so much my book mandatory, but the idea of a discussion about what to do in a mass shooting. Um, and so I'm approaching universities and colleges. It's my own effort. I'm trying to get legislation put in the name of uh, Casey and um, Paco, who were the two innocent stu students that were killed that day. And um, uh, that would make it mandatory that um, active shooter training be part of teacher education programs. Powerful stuff, Irene. Thank you so much. And I just got to say, I really hope that we can respect gun rights. I really do. But at the same time, can we just realize something has to be done to prevent guns from falling into the hands of unstable people? Dennis Pombrian has been a software industry analyst for 20 years, so he's written a lot of articles and books, but this is the first time he's written about the environment, something he's studied since the 70s. The name of his book, The Age of Sustainability. I remember when Richard Branson announced the Virgin Earth Challenge, which was a $25 million prize for anyone who could figure out how to remove uh, a billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and keep it away, you know, that, that prize would be theirs. So I began thinking about it, and I've got a science background, so I know organic chemistry, I know a few things to be dangerous. And the more I studied that problem about 10 years ago, the more I realized that there are a lot of competing issues, and if you try to solve one, you might make another one worse. It was sort of like playing whack-a-mole. Mm. And the metaphor that I developed is that this isn't whack-a-mole, it's really Rubik's Cube. You have to solve six sides at once, and you have to have all six sides in your head and, and try to find the optimum configuration. And uh, that's what uh, set me off, and it made me realize that we're not dealing simply with too, much, too many emissions. We're dealing with the issue of how do we get carbon out of the air, Richard Branson's problem. But we're also dealing with the end of the uh, fossil fuel paradigm. Uh, fossil fuels are running out. Nobody wants to talk about that. And there's a big economic component in this. I was sort of researching two books at one point, uh, one about economics, one about climate. And I, at one point, just had this epiphany that, hey, this is the same book. In economic terms, we're starting a, a long economic cycle that could last 50 to 60 years. And uh, I've been studying cycles in, in the software industry for a long time. That's one of my specialties. So it was, it was a revelation to see that, oh, this, this is in the economy, too. And the economy and the environment are, are really inextricably tied together. What are some things that we can do? Uh, we, can, we can stop denying that there's a problem. <laughs> I'm saying let's forget about the fact that some people don't believe it. By the way, se 7 out of 10 Americans believe the climate is changing and 6 out of 10 believe humans are, are the, the, the problem. But if you put that aside and say, let's not talk about the environment. Let's talk about the fact that fossil fuels are running out. And we have about a 50-year glide path to, to get over to get the economy over to 100% uh, electric power uh, generated by renewable uh, resources. 
then all of a sudden the, the, the discussion changes and you might not convince everybody that, uh, hey, we got to change the, the fossil fuel paradigm or the energy paradigm, but it's another way in. It's another way to say that that's not the only problem. Remember, Rubik's Cube. And if it's going to affect you in your pocketbook, that tends to go a lot further than, well, you might not be able to breathe. Yeah, it, it's going to affect you in your pocketbook. And the, more importantly, it's if we continue on the path that we're on, uh, growing regions are going to be less productive at the same time that uh, global population is rising, uh, is projected to rise to 10 billion by the middle of this century. That is like adding another India and China to today's population. Fundamentally, though, what this book does is it offers hope. It says, this is not as bad as it seems. We've faced this kind of problem before. And we can we can face this similar problem and, and have some great results. I also talk a lot about the space program and why it's similar and why it's different from the challenges we face now. But I mean that's that's something that's in uh, recent living memory, and uh, therefore it should resonate with a lot of people. There's a website called AgeSustainability.com, and on the site I've got a two-minute video that uh, basically a trailer that uh, explains the book. It was, it was done professionally with animation. It looks really cool. Um, and then uh, I continue to write for my site, which is basically a blog. I also publish a lot of um, sustainability-oriented articles at Medium, and I'm investigating other places. And finally, I've got a social media program going to reach out to more people. All right, Dennis. Good work. Thank you. Jack Cashman was behind the wheel driving to Bangor, Maine when I caught up with him. He's a real estate developer, and he's also served in state and local government now. He's the author of An Irish Immigrant Story. Part of the Irish Immigrant Story is about my family. Uh, My mother was an old lady, and my father's a Cashman, and both families came over during the famine. So uh, some of the story is actually from family history. Some of it uh, is is more historical information that I researched while I was in Ireland. Uh, The main character is actually my great-grandfather. His father came over and his mother came over during the famine. His father died in a card accident when his mother was pregnant for him, so he never met his father. But the main character is is him and his brother Tom. And uh, my great-grandfather and his brother Tom actually did have a store on Derby Street in Salem. But I tie him in with um, some Irish folks who uh, had done well since they came to America and were not uh, shy about sending money back home to help the Irish try to gain their independence from Great Britain. So it, it progresses through stories about the famine, about the struggles of the Irish immigrants who were discriminated against, and, and it goes right into the revolution itself. It ends there. I am going to write a sequel because, as every Irish person knows and most of the world knows, when Ireland gained its independence, the six northern counties in Ulster stayed with Great Britain, and it has been a sore spot ever since. So there's a story in there about my uh, great-great-grandfather looking for work and having the foreman at the job site bring him out front to read him the sign because he couldn't read read him the sign that said, no dogs, no pigs, no Irish. And that's a story from my family history. And, and I think people need to realize that immigrants have always struggled. The Irish struggled. 
immigrants today struggle, but they contribute to the country greatly. And much of the struggle that they have to overcome makes them uh, stronger and makes them better citizens in the end. The other story is I don't think enough people are aware of the devastation of the Irish famine. And I try to get that across in this book, how many people starved to death, how many people had to leave the country, but also how it inspired the Irish to fight harder for their independence. All right. Very proud man. Well, I think the Irish take pride in their heritage for good reasons. We've overcome a lot, and um, both uh, in, in our native country and in this country. And uh, I think that's why uh, you find that Irish people have Irish parades that celebrate St. Patrick's Day, and they take pride in their heritage because of what they've overcome. How do you think it compares to the way immigrants are treated today? I think there's a lot of similarities. Today, the majority of the immigrants coming in from South America are treated just as shabbily as the Irish were. You know, I understand that we need an immigration policy and that people have to come in legally. But even immigrants that are coming in legally are mistreated, uh, and they're not welcome. And, And frankly, you're either a Native American or you are a descendant of immigrants. There's no in-between. So it, it, it behooves us to look back at our own ancestors and how they were treated when they got here. You are so right, Jack. Thank you. And interesting to note that uh, Jack's gotten a lot of support from Maine's Irish Heritage Center and other Irish groups, inviting him to do book signings all over the place. So, so look for him. We have to take a quick break, but we're coming right back. This is the Page Publishing Book Club. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then now's the time to call Page Publishing at 800-204-6099 and do it immediately. You see, they're looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Page Publishing will take the time to review most of the books submitted to them, and they'll even give you their feedback. And if they like what they read, Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, and other outlets. They'll handle everything. Copyright protection, printing, cover art, publicity, and editing. So if you've written a novel, a children's book, a cookbook, inspirational work, a book of poetry, or biography, and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-204-6099 now for your free author submission kit. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call for your free author submission kit. Call Page Publishing at 800-204-6099. We are back on the Page Publishing Book Club. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini, an outdoorsman and a hunter in Tennessee for over three decades and recently retired from the military. David Brown has so many stories to tell he had to share them in his book entitled Tales from the Field. I've been hunting with a group of friends for 25 or 30 years, and when we get together and we're hunting, we always, you know, sit in a blind around a fire or the dinner table and recount old stories of great days. And finally, I guess about 2013, somebody said, man, we need to write this stuff down before we get too old to remember. And I was about to retire from the military, and so I got elected, and... um I love telling stories anyway, and so uh, I just started jotting them down and writing, and I had about 35 stories when I looked up, so I started sending them to my my friends and family, and they're like, you got to publish this. This is great. So anyway, that's how it kind of came to be. So you got any favorite stories that you can share? Um, Gosh, there's so many. 
black duck pear is, is one of my favorites. Um, Lynch's world champion box call. There, there was an older gentleman that, that taught me to turkey hunt and, um, I picked up pecans to save $10 so that I could buy this world champion box call. And so that's a story of his name is typical Southern name, Ray Jean, cousin Ray Jean. And um, he took me hunting and I scared the turkey away right before I shot it. But I still have that call 45 years later. I've killed a lot of turkeys with it. and, And that's one of my my prized possessions, I guess. I worked hard to be able to pay for it, and I still have it and use it to this day. <laughs> you know, we're just living in a fast time of internet technology and just consumed by all that. And, and this is a book that, you know, I hope people would just find a cozy chair and sit down and read, and and it's going to make you laugh, and it's going to make you think of, especially outdoorsman days you were in the field. But I think one of the greatest compliments that I've gotten on it is I've heard from mothers and wives and grandmothers of outdoorsmen that have, you know, their their family members hunted, but they, you know, never did. And, and I've had several ladies tell me that, you know, I felt like I was right there with you and, and it was fun. And now I see what it's, you know, all about. And so to me, that's the greatest compliment I could get because... There, there's a lot of terminology and stuff that, you know, you associate with with this these sports, but I tried to write it in layman's terms so that everybody could understand it. So, you know, may, maybe somebody that's never hunted or spent time outdoors um, could read it and uh, be intrigued to, to do it, and that, that would be a good thing. You're in an area where everybody hunts, right? Definitely. Yeah. I'm kind of in the mecca of it, and... Um, you know, I reached out to my Barnes and Nobles and, you know, the person that I talked to said, oh, we're always looking for local writers and trying to, to find that niche there that I can get the word out and, you know, besides just family and friends. All right, David. Well, you're on the right track. Thank you. Rosanna Atias DeMario was writing and recorded guided audio meditation for adults and children when she was inspired by her students at a private educational center in California to write a rhyming book entitled Discovering My Beautiful World. Um, the children in my class were just so amazing. They were so bright and they inspired me to think of um, how the world is seen by a child is so fresh and new all the time. It's so exciting. And we as adults, we are so jaded. We have forgotten how amazing and beautiful the world is. And so seeing it, and I'm a six-year-old kid myself, (laughs) I still see everything fresh and new and um, little things excite me and, and, and bring me awe and joy. And I saw this in a child every single day that I worked with them. And um, I decided to write a book that would bring that back into the listener. So whether the child or the adult that listens and reads the book with them, they can step back into that world. It is a picture book with the children, and each page displays their thoughts and how they're seeing the world. So... um, I wonder what makes the wind blow. Where does it come from and where does it go? So you see a child looking up and wondering the thought. You know, I notice that flowers bloom gently in their own time. 
with a sweet fragrance that is purely divine. And you see a child smelling the flower. So everything that they're experiencing is what we're seeing. And um, first what I did was when I had the idea, I called all the parents in and I explained the idea and they were all in. They all loved the idea. And so I hired a photographer and I found a perfect location where I could do all of this. And the the pictures are displaying the thoughts of the child on the page. And you see the the beauty of the child and the light in their eyes. And um, it's one story. It takes you throughout the day, from the beginning of waking up through the end of the day when they say goodnight, the laughter and the joy and the friendships that they make, how they play, and how there's so much to discover about the beautiful world that we live in and all of the things that they can imagine that are theirs for them to explore. Um, At the very end um, of the book, I just ask them to remember that this is a world that they have to take care of and love and enjoy and be an adventurer and discover something new every day. Also, just to let you know, I did record an audio version that is included with this book. There's a link that parents can go to and um, you can hear it. I, I mixed it with some beautiful instrumental music. So again, it's very meditative. It takes you into a whole uh, different space of uh, relaxation and, and tranquility as you're listening to the book. And my thought was to hopefully bring parents and, and children together to step into that world of wonderment and joy again. All right, Rosanna, thank you. Writing is therapy for B.W. Goodwin to escape chronic pain he's experienced since childhood. In his book, Drogon, Birth of Dracragus, he creates a fantasy world from the bottom up. It's about a uh, race called the uh, Dragonkin. Well, one, his name is Drogon. He is taken away from his home by a couple of the gods that were looking for the dragonkin. And it's an adventure of him meeting different characters and going to places that he's never been to before and trying to navigate the world when he has no experience with doing such things. He is trying to help out the other races because the gods are ruling with an iron fist. So the story follows his journey to facing the two gods that originally took him from his home. I was trying to create a character that, unlike me, didn't go through a lot of physical pain. It was kind of a wish fulfillment type of inspiration for my characters and how I developed them. There's a lot of blood and gore type of imagery, so it's uh, for mature audience, and it's for those that like uh, classic high fantasy. Um, It's going to be a four-part series. How are you developing a fan base? Right now, it's mainly through uh, Facebook. I'm advertising it on my personal Facebook. I'm going and looking into figuring out how to make an actual uh, Facebook profile for the book. Uh, I've been looking into doing book signings uh, here locally because the uh, local library has uh, asked me to do a book signing. That's good. And 
a lot of the books that have been sold have been people within my uh, community and friends I had from college and just people that I've randomly talked to that have purchased it. All right. What's your greatest (laughs) hope for this book? That people just read it and that they uh, feel a connection to the characters and the world that I built. Finally, Thomas Moore retired after 20 years in the Army serving as a foreign diplomat. He took a lot of mental notes along the way, learned a lot of lessons, and shares it all in his book, My Life, The Realest Story Ever Told. A lot of the people out there, they're, they're, they're human beings just like we, we are. They're just trying to survive, you know. They're, they're not all, always bad, you know. And that's what I talk about in my book, you know. I met up with gypsies, nomads. I met up with farmers. They were just like the same farmers over here. They was just trying to survive, make an honest living. They was just caught up in a bad situation half the time. I, I, I grew up in the projects out of poverty, one of five children. And my mother, she, she went to school and, and she also had a job and she was she was raising five children. My father, I never really knew him. And it just shows that I wasn't involved in a gang life or a criminal environment. And so my goal was family orientated, just like my mom laid down those family, good family values and religious values. Never give up hope because you can always prevail. Originally, I wanted to become a, a police officer or attorney, but I ended up joining the military and then found that it was my calling and I enjoyed interacting with people in different cultures. By the time I got out, I was a staff sergeant. I loved taking care of soldiers and I loved what I was doing. I was, I was able to also teach and I was able to become a combat medic. I also got to practice a little bit of law while I was in the military. The purpose of this book is to keep an open mind about life and unity. Never give up hope, no matter how dark you may think it is. There's always hope, no matter where we're born at, from what society, what culture. You know, always look to the positive side of life. What I want to reach out to is the young men and the young women as well, because they deserve to be respected because I respect my mom who raised me as a single parent. But the young men is to show them that there's a different way out and there's other opportunities besides the street. And I love everything that Page Publishing has done for me. And it's, uh, they've been excellent in the promotions. And I'm, I've been totally satisfied with everything that Page Publishing has, has done. Y'all going above and beyond the call of duty, as they say in, in the United States Army. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, so nice of you. We appreciate that. We really do. Thank you. Okay, uh, that's a wrap for this edition of the Page Publishing Book Club. Thanks so much for stopping by and or downloading the podcast. You know you can do that, right? You know that. You just go to 710WOR.com. You can even check out the episodes you missed. Now, get your thoughts together, write them down, and you could be the next guest right here on the Page Publishing Book Club. See you next time. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then now's the time to call Page Publishing at 800-204-6099 and do it immediately. You see, they're looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review most of the books submitted to them. And they'll even give you their feedback. And if they like what they read, Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, and other outlets. They'll handle everything. Copyright protection. 
production, printing, cover art, publicity, and editing. So if you've written a novel, a children's book, a cookbook, inspirational work, a book of poetry, or biography, and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-204-6099 now for your free author submission kit. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call for your free author submission kit. Call Page Publishing at 800-204-6099. This has been a podcast from WOR. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.